And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? My name's Sam Walton, and you're listening to Flame Radio. Put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. My name is John Sheik, and today I feel privileged to find myself in the Friends House, the Friends Quaker Meeting House in central London. And with me, I'm delighted to say, is my special guest, the Quaker and Peacemaker, Sam Walton. And Sam, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself, please? So my name's Sam Walton. I like football, cycling, going down the pub, and I'm also a Quaker and Part for me being a Quaker is a lot about taking action for peace. I believe that there's that of good, that of God, something unique, special in everyone. We're all children of God. And as part of that, we need to try and make sure people are treated equally. And also, I don't believe in killing. I think killing is wrong. And uh, I think there's a commandment somewhere about that as well. And I've been very concerned about peace for a long time. In fact, in my day job, I work as the Peace and Disarmament Programme Manager on behalf of the Quakers in Britain in Friends House in London. But also, I've taken quite a bit of action for peace in my own time, which I think is what you want to talk to me about today. We certainly do, Sam, and we'll be talking about what you've been getting up to in Lancashire later on in the programme today. But first of all, if I can take you all the way back to the beginning, what was your upbringing like, first of all? Both my parents are Quakers, and I was brought up going to Quaker meeting, which was great. And one of the things that was really great is they didn't ram it down your throat at all. Quakers are pathetic at outreach, inreach, evangelism, anything. We're really bad at it. Quakers nationally, if you look at the statistics, almost all Quakers are actually people that find Quakerism. Hardly any people are kind of brought up Quakers and stay in Quakers. And I kind of, I went to some Quaker events when I was growing up for younger Quakers and, and they were absolutely amazing and helped me discover. It's wonderful when you're a teenager to have serious conversations about what you believe. And having those conversations made me realise that I believed in Quakerism, but I was really struggling with this pacifist stuff and really struggling with uh, God. That's a bit of a tricky concept. And then I went off to university and I think being away from it almost brought me closer to that. And through really doing peace work, I knew I was a Quaker kind of in, in the values of Quakers, but I didn't necessarily have the core beliefs in worship and God. And through doing the peace work, I actually found that the worship and the Christocentric belief system was what I was looking for. Yeah, been a Quaker ever since university, kind of fully signed up. Amen. Offers pain or healing Are you there In a hot dry wind Over sand Where once stood farms In a tired mother's eyes In a stare that hides all feeling Watching her child grow stronger Or die In her arms The winds of trade blow down the walls, let cool rains fall again. Let each little girl grow proud and tall, and small boys become gentlemen. Are you there in the heart of the one 
who pulls the trigger We're the generals who always lose No matter how they try Are you there inside the terrorist Who shows no fear nor flicker Of remorse as he explodes Causing innocence Let the battlefields grow silent, Lord, and in our foes see you. Let our armies all march home again, then let's try what love can do. May my confusion become simple words as I wait here in the quiet Lead me from my darkness, Lord, and hold me in your light. For those who are not familiar with the Quaker Church or the Quaker Fellowship, it is quite different, especially on a Sunday. Quaker meetings are very different from most other church services in that the silence is very prominent. I believe that if you go to a Quaker meeting on a Sunday, most people sit in silence waiting for the Holy Spirit. That's a good explanation. It's meeting for worship. We worship together we all have an equal access to the divine. And therefore, we come together and jointly sit in silence and worship the divine. And when you feel moved by the Holy Spirit, by God to speak, you can speak. And it's a very powerful experience. Certainly for me, it's the spiritual root of my Christian practice. Sam, you talked about how you went away to university and stepping out of that context that you'd known for so long helped you to realise what it was, in fact, you'd grown up in. I take it with Quakerism, the peacemaking and the pacifism is absolutely central to your beliefs, Quaker beliefs, and therefore the Prince of Peace, Jesus, and his teachings, are they central to Quakerism and your understanding of it? That is actually just a killer question. It's such a good question. Wow, yeah. For me, I've been really privileged. I work on behalf of the UK's biggest peace church, Quakers in Britain, to do peace work. And in doing so, I get to work with an amazing spectrum of Christians from Pax Christi to the Fellowship of Reconciliation, Methodist Peace Fellowship, Anglican Pacifist Fellowship. You name just so many brilliant, all different flavours of Christian dedicated to peace. And really, I feel incredibly privileged that I got a lot of my biblical education, a lot of my theological understanding from their different peace theologies. And, and I rejoice in every single Christian who can really live that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that his peace isn't just about words. It's about deeds more than creeds. And I think that's very important to Quakers because we do not have a creed. Everyone has an equal access to God and therefore it would be pointless for us to try and lock down what each other believes. However, we do have things that unite us like the peace testimony. But that said, that's expressed in very different ways. So, for instance, I know a Quaker who's an RAF pilot. Wow. Yeah, I think about 10% of the membership of Veterans for Peace in the UK are Quakers and whilst as a church corporately we're pacifist corporately we are against war I think the main thing about the peace testimony is that if you're not struggling with it and I, I would go so far as to say this for Jesus's message about taking action for peace and taking non-violent action for peace if you're not struggling with Jesus's messages for peace then you're doing it wrong because it's not meant to be easy we're not Christians because it's uh, it's a walk in the park we're Christians because we put our trust in Jesus Christ and he is our saviour. And that's a truth that we have to live out. And, <laughs> and and I see that in the RAF Quaker. I see that in Quakers that express their peace testimony in all different ways, that they are trying to live out the Quaker peace testimony in Jesus' radical message of peace. 
and it's Norman here with a few words just to help your understanding. The internet says that the Quaker Peace Testimony, or Testimony Against War, is a shorthand description of action generally taken by Quakers for peace and against participation in war. Like other Quaker testimonies, it is not a belief, but is a description of committed actions, in this case to promote peace and to refrain from and actively oppose participation in war. The Quakers' original refusal to bear arms has been broadened to embrace protests and demonstrations in opposition to government policies of war and confrontation with others who bear arms, whatever the reason, in the support of peace and active non-violence. I hope that helps. I do need to say, though, that we do not have a creed as Quakers, and most Quakers are Christocentric, but there are some Quakers that are not. And that's fine. I know. I've met one of those who are not in Chester, and he is a very faithful Quaker. He goes to the Quaker meeting house in Chester every Sunday, but he says that he doesn't believe in life after physical death. He doesn't believe in a heaven. He feels that this life is it. But still, following the teachings of Jesus is still the best way to live your life in this life. For Quakers, you know, like I said, we're about deeds, not creeds, which was actually the motto of the suffragettes. So another wonderful <laughs> nonviolent direct action movement. And it's about how you live your life and, and what you do. And of course, if anybody disagrees with that, just have a look at the Gospels, because I believe that Jesus exemplified that, not least when he was tried before a kangaroo court. And of course, throughout church history, even in recent times, the likes of Martin Luther King, Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, only exemplified that sort of pacifist, nonviolent, resistant approach to Christian living. <laughs> Begin. In a world where profit is not the king 
let's come even further forward into into recent times and let's go to January 2017. And Sam, you got into a little bit of trouble. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of why you did what you did? Okay, so about halfway through 2016, I saw a picture on Twitter. I spend too much time on Twitter. I'll, I'll, I'll hold my hands up there. Same here. And it was from Human Rights Watch. And it showed a casing of a bomb. Saudi Arabia had dropped a bomb, and they dropped many bombs, on a food store in Yemen. And it blown up the food store. Yemen is undergoing a severe food shortage, if not a famine. So that wasn't great. But by some miracle, the casing of this bomb had survived, or at least the bit had survived with all the serial numbers on. And those serial numbers showed that that bomb was a Paveway 4 bomb, like those made in factory in Glenrothes, just north of Edinburgh, by Raytheon. And that bomb had been sold to Saudi Arabia after the war had started, after March 2015. And that meant that Britain had sold that bomb to Saudi Arabia in the full knowledge that it was almost certainly going to be used by Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen, where there is such a weight of evidence of war crimes, of indiscriminate targeting of civilians, or even deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure. So I felt a calling. I felt a moment of shakenness. An epiphany. Yeah, it was like I felt that this was the reason I have been put on this planet. And I just had a bit of time off work to kind of think about what really God's calling for me was, how I can best serve God. We all have many different callings. There are so many people that live out their faith through nursing or teaching or business or or whatever it is. And, And I feel that I am called to be an agitator, to be a bit of a you know, I'm good at kicking off. I'm good at being a bit of an arsehole. Can I say that? (laughs) And that's what I'm good at. And it felt that this was what I was put here to do. I didn't want to do it. I absolutely didn't want to take any action about this. You know, I've got a nice life. I've got a girlfriend and a house. I've got a local pub. I've got a football team. I I don't want to do this. I want to live my life. And I couldn't avoid it at all. And I'd kind of walk around the office in a daze going, have you seen this bomb? It's awful. And I just felt like I had to do something. Now, I've been doing stuff about the arms trade for a while now. I'm 31 now. When I was 15, I went on my first campaign against arms trade demonstration with my little brother. I've written to my MP. I've met my MP. I've been to BA Systems, big arms companies, AGM. I've had stalls. I've dressed up. I've been on marches. I've signed petitions. I've you know, been on protests. I've sat down outside buildings the arms dealers are in. I've... If you've got any ideas, let me know. <laughs> I've tried it all. Trust me. <laughs> we weren't getting anywhere. The then Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, came out and said to Parliament, to Parliament of all people. Could you stop criticising Saudi Arabia? It's making it really hard for us to sell them weapons. To Parliament, our democracy. Could you just stop functioning for a bit? Because we're trying to sell more weapons here and we don't care about our democracy and we don't care about what these weapons are doing. And this government is so determined to arm Saudi Arabia that nothing is going to stop them. They, They will listen to no one. 76% of the British public don't think we should be arming Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia are the number one funder of terrorism in the UK. Yeah? Really not a good idea to arm these people. But they're so determined to arm them. There's a severe democratic deficit here. Nothing we say will change anything. So we need to do something a bit more. And I went out and I started to look for people to take some direct action, non-violent direct action, much like, you know, a certain uh, carpenter from Nazareth once did. (laughs) And to try and, yeah, take some action like that. Just for the sake of the listeners, to bring them up to speed, the United Kingdom is the third largest arms dealer in the world. One of our biggest customers whom we export all sorts of arms and technology to is Saudi Arabia. And at the moment, that arrangement is supposed to be illegal according to the United Nations. But however, Saudi Arabia continue to wage war in and against a very obscure Middle Eastern state, Yemen, where often the victims of British arms are innocent men, women and children. And yes, Michael Fallon MP was 
was the Defence Secretary up until recently when he resigned, not over our record on arms dealings, but because of sexual misdemeanours, shall we say. Two, one, two, three, four.
Sam, that brings us almost to January 2017 and an encounter one day with a Methodist minister from Leeds. Quite. Well, I was at a Quaker wedding. And if you've ever been to Quaker wedding, one of the things that happens there, well, because we're all equal, the wedding is between the two partners and God. And we are but the witnesses. And what that means is everyone needs to sign the wedding certificate and there's a big queue at the end. So I was queuing to sign the wedding certificate and I saw this chap, the Reverend Daniel Woodhouse, in front of me in the queue and I'd seen him on various protests. So I said to him, hey, Dan, uh, how's it going? Yeah, he's good. Do you want to take some direct action against the arms trade? And he said, yeah. Yeah, just like that. And I said, it may involve being arrested. And he said, that's fine. I'm prepared for that. And I said, it may involve going to prison for a couple of years. And he said, that's all right. Which is better than that conversation usually goes, you know. And suddenly I had a partner to work on this with. So we looked around for where the UK was most complicit in the war in Yemen. And we are complicit. We're complicit in every bomb drop there. Most of the Saudi Air Force is UK made. And that UK made Saudi Air Force is all assembled in one base. And that base is called B.A. Wharton. It's between Blackpool and Preston at the mouth of the River Ribble in Lancashire. A bit of a tongue twister there. So we looked at that and we looked at data openly available on the internet. And we found out that there are a number of planes, mainly Eurofighter Typhoons, Panavia Tornadoes and Hawks, that were on that base due to be shipped to Saudi Arabia any day now. So once we found that out, we thought, right, we've got a target. If we get to these planes, Saudi Arabia is so desperate for war material, so desperate. I mean, we've diverted bombs from the RAF just to sell them to Saudi Arabia. We're literally jeopardizing our own country's defense to flog Saudi Arabia more weapons. And they're so desperate for war material. Even if we delay one plane for a day, we might prevent one strike and save 10 lives. And if we get to one of these planes and manage to disarm it, then we can potentially take it out of action for a long time. And if we get to a hangar full of these planes, we could save thousands of lives. So at about four o'clock in the morning on January the 29th, myself and the Reverend Daniel Woodhouse cut through the fences into the base using a pair of bolt cutters. Tool station do very good deals on bolt cutters. And we walked along a hedge line and across a large floodlit and covered in CCTV taxiway. It's about the size of a football pitch. And then we got to a door of the hangar where we knew these planes were stored in. And we pulled on the door and it opened. And we thought, wow, you know, that's a stroke of luck. And inside there was another door. And that door had two glass windows in. And through one of the windows, about a metre or two away, we could see the nose cone of a Eurofighter Typhoon. These uh, cost uh, anything from 68 million to 120 million each. And they're the main high-end jet which Saudi Arabia is using to drop lots of bombs on Yemen. So we knew we were in the right place. And when we scouted the base, we'd seen tornadoes back from active service in Saudi Arabia going into the same hangar. We'd seen planes with Saudi markings on in that hangar. And we thought, right, we're almost there. This door had a kind of swipe thing on, so we couldn't go straight through. We got out a crowbar and started to try and pry the door open. And uh, that made a lot of noise. And unfortunately, that attracted security. But we almost had the door off its hinges. In about another 20 seconds, we would have been in there. Security saw us through the door and we put down all our tools. You know, it's a non-violent action. And they came through the door and we said, well, hello, we're here to disarm Saudi jets bound for war crimes in Yemen. And they looked at us like we'd just landed from another planet. And eventually they said, could you go and wait outside the hangar? And then they radioed in their colleagues and their colleagues got in a Land Rover and drove around and they, they turned up and we gave them all our details and then they, they couldn't find the hole in the fence where we cut through. So I went and showed them where the hole was. Well, there, two things happened. First off, there was a moment where we were just outside and it was very cold. You know, January morning, you know, about 4.30 in the morning by now. And Dan had a big scarf on, but I knew he was in full priest gear, reverend gear. Sorry, let's be ecumenically correct, underneath. <laughs> and so I just kind of, you know, gestured to him, maybe loosen that scarf a bit. And he loosened the scarf and you could see the head of security's face sink like, oh, these aren't just two crackpots. <laughs> One of them's a reverend. <laughs> 
I was really pleased because we sent out a time-delayed press release. And if we hadn't got on the base, we would have looked like complete idiots because all the media would have heard about it and we would have looked like idiots. So I was pleased we got on the base. And just by getting on the base, it had been a really good protest. They would have had to do loads of security checks. And we may have managed to delay a plane for a day and save a life. Result, really pleased we got on the base. And I said, Dan, you know, I'm really pleased and told him why. He just said, I'm gutted. We were so close. And if we'd got to those planes... We would have saved so many lives. And we're still gutted to this day. And we said it in court, which our lawyers weren't very happy about. But we still got off. And uh, then we we were driven around off the base and arrested and taken to Blackpool Police Station. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online and on DAB across the city of Manchester. My special guest today is the Quaker peacemaker, Sam Walton. And Sam, we've been talking about how you became arrested in January 2017 because you were answering a calling, you believe, from God to do something about war crimes in Yemen. And there was a bit of a journey, in one sense, between then and October 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about what the process was like before your big day in court at Burnley? Mm. Well, it was a lot of work. Going to court is a lot of work. I'd advise against it if you can avoid it. Well, really, it started when we were in the police cells, because we called a law firm called Byman's in London. And they've got a chap there called Mike Schwartz, who is probably the best protest lawyer in the country. Yeah, I mean, he's won Legal Aid Law of the Year. He's amazing. We called him and he sent someone to the police station to do the interviews with us and, you know, process us quickly. And unbeknownst to us, another lawyer who knew of Mike's reputation, seeing our material in the press, because our press release went rather well, and uh, called Blinani, uh, I can't pronounce her full name, Garrick, it's an Irish name. She works for Matrix Chambers. And she contacted Mike pretty much when we were still in the cells and said, hey, are you uh, representing these people? I'd be very interested in helping out. And she's a barrister at Matrix Chambers who are top of the line of, of barristers. And uh, she just got back from Harvard from writing about the Arms Trade Treaty and is just one of these absolute super brains. And so we had these two brilliant lawyers working for us and they helped us a lot with the preparatory work. However, one of the things we need to do is explain in our own words why we did things. And they spent a lot of time asking us long questions. Once I got an email with 70 questions from Mike and I had to answer every single one. You know, it was a document running 30 or 40 pages by the end of it. And we just had to explain in detail everything. First off, we had to go up to the police station after three months to answer bail in Blackpool. They bailed us to Blackpool Magistrates Court who then proceeded to schedule a trial in Burnley Magistrates Court. But before that, the judge called a pre-trial hearing. There's quite a few trips up north all involved with that. And eventually, when it came to the trial, 
I decided to self-represent because that would allow me to cross-examine Dan in the witness box and Blinner to cross-examine me, which was useful tactically. And also I have a bit of lay experience with the law, so I thought that was useful. But yeah, it was a huge, huge amount of work. Now, I know some people listening to this might be thinking or even looking to quote from one of the letters in the New Testament where it says, obey the authorities. But when it comes to the law, certainly in this country at the moment, the way I read it, the law gives us two choices, two options. Either you do what we say or you face the consequences. And in the action that you and Dan took in January 2017, yes, you didn't do what they would have preferred you not to have done, but you didn't try and avoid the consequences. You didn't try and avoid arrest. For religious reasons, you were quite happily to be arrested because you felt that what was going on was a greater crime? Absolutely. I think there's many different levels of legality here. So first off, it's important to say we carried a statement explaining our actions with us. So it wasn't going to be hard to convict us in any way. You know, we said, you know, hey, we're here on this base, we're trying to do this. They could have arrested us before we even got there if they'd found the statement. And we would have happily given that to them. So we were very, very clear about our actions. We intended to disarm those jets. We intended to do probably tens of millions of pounds worth of damage. We're very sad we didn't. But there's also other levels of legality. There is the EU, the UK, and the Arms Trade Treaty, which the UK has signed and ratified, regulating sales of weapons, which clearly all say exporting arms to Saudi Arabia is illegal. When there are opinions from barristers that say, yes, it is illegal. There are two parliamentary committees that have condemned the UK sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia. The UN's condemned it. Amnesty, Oxfam, Human Rights Watch have condemned it. The British public, in their opinions, have condemned it. There is no way to argue that these are moral. There is no way to say that in any way we should be trying to sell more weapons to Saudi Arabia because we can't build our economy on the bodies of innocents. It's wrong. So it's kind of quite an open and shut case there as well. And then there is the defences that we sought to run in court, which is that we sought to say that... We were committing this crime to prevent damage to property, to save lives, and to prevent greater crimes, to prevent war crimes, which, legally speaking, they're all defences. Jesus was still speaking when Judas the betrayer came up. He was one of the twelve disciples, and a large mob armed with swords and clubs was with him. They'd been sent by the chief priests and the nation's leaders. Judas had told them ahead of time. Arrest the man I greet with a kiss. Judas walked right up to Jesus and said, Hello, teacher. Then Judas kissed him. Jesus replied, My friend, why are you here? The men grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of Jesus' followers pulled out a sword. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus told him, Put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. Don't you know that I could ask my father and right away he would send me more than 12 armies of angels? Then, how could the words of the scriptures come true, which say that this must happen? Jesus said to the mob, Why do you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like a criminal? Day after day I sat and taught in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that what the prophets wrote would come true. All of Jesus' disciples left him and ran away.
So Sam, it got to the 24th of October 2017 and you and the Reverend Dan Woodhouse were up in Burnley in Lancashire for a three-day trial. A silly question, but on the morning of the 24th, at the start of the trial, how did it feel? Was you scared? Uh, we were fairly relaxed. We had prepared to go to prison for two years for this action. And we'd carried a statement with us explaining that we were there to do tens of millions of pounds worth of damage. The Crown Prosecution Service estimated that the planes in that hangar were worth £612 million. There's an open and shut case that we conspired to do criminal damage against these planes. And we could have faced a very long time in jail for that, up to 10 years, but possibly, given our good character, we'd anticipated to. And yet we were charged with £1,000 worth of damage to the fence and the doors. And the reason why that was is because Mike Schwartz, our lawyer, Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year, knows what he's talking about, said he thought this was probably the biggest conspiracy to do criminal damage case in UK legal history ever, if we'd even done. But ultimately, when the trial was on, it wasn't really us on trial. It was the actions of BAE Systems, the actions of our government in exporting these weapons to Saudi Arabia that people were really talking about. We're just a way to get people talking about that. And they didn't want the publicity of that trial, and they were worried about a jury. 21 years before, three women had broken into the same base and they were found not guilty by a Liverpool Crown Court jury of trying to damage these planes and they were very worried that would happen again. And the reason why it was only £1,000 is because up to £5,000 you don't get a jury. So they wanted us away from a jury. But ultimately, that meant for us that the penalties we could have faced were so much lower. We were looking probably at a fine at the very maximum if everything went badly. And when you're looking at two years of jail time, getting a fine would have been uh, absolutely fine. And it's a privilege to... uh, In any event, we kind of regard it as a privilege to suffer for what we believe is God's work. And it's a privilege to have been able to act in this way. And I had a very embarrassing position where some Yemenis were insisting on if there was a fine on paying it. You know, it's like you're living under British bombs in Yemen and you're insisting on sending me the dollars if we get a fine. So quite pleased we avoided that situation. And indeed, Sam, you seem to be getting a tremendous amount of support right from the outset of that court case. I saw the photographs of different church groups outside the courthouse in Burnley with their banners. Huddersfield Quakers certainly seem to be very prominent, as well as the Methodist Church there. And when you were actually in that court, in that situation, did you still feel that, yes, what we did and what we're doing now was still right? Yeah, absolutely. When the judge came to read his verdict, I turned to Dan and said, no regrets. And he said, only that we didn't get to the planes. (laughs) And after a three-day trial at Burnley Magistrates Court, Sam Walton and the Reverend Dan Woodhouse were found not guilty. Sam, can you tell us about what the judge said and his reasoning for finding you both not guilty? I can. Under Section 5, Part 2 of the Criminal Damage Act, there is a defence if you took reasonable steps to prevent imminent damage to property. And he said, we talked about when we broke into the site, we cut the smallest hole possible in that fence. We're not there to damage a fence. We were there to get to the jets. And we were very polite. You know, the two security guards we met were a couple of thousand donuts past where they need to be. You know, we weren't going to try and overpower them and try and get to the planes or anything. It was about a non-violent action. So he said, you've shown that you've been reasonable. And you've also shown that these planes were going to leave imminently, within days, to go to Saudi, where they would have been used in Yemen. And it's unreasonable for us to try and fly out to Saudi and disarm them. This was the last possible place in the UK we could have tried and disarmed them. So, therefore, he found us not guilty. And Sam, how did that feel? Well, Reverend Dan wept. I felt that I'm still serving God, and my duty is to be as effective in serving God as possible. And so I checked to see if the person that was going to go and put it on Twitter and call the people sending the press release had left the room. And uh, I checked in with our lawyer... And then I started hugging Dan. (laughs) Yeah, it felt amazing. It felt right. I was delighted that we were able to communicate 
two judges who are often reasonably conservative, especially in cases like this, that what we had done was in right order. He spoke in his judgment about our faith and I felt delighted that we had been able to convey the depth of feeling and the depth of belief that we held in this area. And most of all, it was a boost. It made us able to speak more clearly about what we'd done and you know, get more media coverage and hopefully stop more weapons going to Saudi Arabia. And therefore, that obviously pleased me greatly. And Sam, was the fact that basically the United Kingdom is breaking the law in all its relationships with Saudi Arabia, did that have a great deal of bearing on the case and the eventual verdict? Yeah, I think it did, because it's so blatant what's happening. There's so much evidence. Everyone in the international community is condemning Saudi Arabia for these war crimes. Everyone apart from Trump, yeah, which says something there. <laughs> and really, Amnesty, Oxfam, Human Rights Watch, the UN, Parliament, lawyers, you know, public opinion, they're all against this. They all say it's wrong. And it's just so obvious that it is wrong and that so the court can't stop the government from acting in this way. But what it can do is say, yeah, it's reasonable for you to try and disarm these weapons. So, yeah, we were found not guilty, but ultimately it's a condemnation of BAE systems, their arming of Saudi Arabia and the government's arms export policy that allows them to do this. And the then Defence Secretary Michael Fallon's comments about criticism, perhaps maybe possibly threatening our arms deals with Saudi Arabia, that was around about the same time. Do you feel that he might even have been personally threatened with the fact that the two of you were going to court, knowing that a lot of this could come out in a court of law? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we fail to realise a lot in the UK is Saudi Arabia is basically a feudal government. All the government ministers are relatives of the king. And when you protest, when you insult, when you criticise in any way, however slight, any element of government policy, you therefore criticise the royal family and the whole state. If you protest in Saudi Arabia, you will be tortured if you're lucky. Worst case, you die and your family disappears, which happens reasonably regularly. And they can't handle this criticism at all. I've been involved in other protests where Major General Ahmed Asiri, who is in charge of the war in Yemen, was in London and I put him under citizen's arrest because, well, he's a war criminal. The Metropolitan Police followed up by investigating him for war crimes. And that offended the Saudi Arabians so much that Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, went and called the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia to kind of apologise and you know, smooth things over a bit. Ultimately, these Eurofighters that we were targeting, they're the end of a tranche of 72 planes going to Saudi Arabia. And the government had expected to sign another deal for 48 more planes, and they haven't. And that is a success that is largely due to people in the UK expressing their opinions about this. Everyone that's written to their MP, everyone that's protested about this, and actions where we've broken into bases, have played a part in the Saudis refusing to buy these jets because they're upset. And that's great. We are stopping war crimes. So we have had a success, even though we didn't actually get to the planes. We, you know, we've played a very small part in a large success, and that fills me with joy. Sam, one final question as time is marching on. There will be some Christians who will hear your words and they will say, look, this is all going a bit too far. You know, citizens' arrests and trying to dismantle war planes. That's not what the Christian faith is all about. And yet we all claim to follow the same Jesus who went into the temple in Jerusalem and kicked over the tables and looked to basically dismantle a corrupt system that was operating out of the temple in Jerusalem. A Jesus who was regarded as such a threat to the religious and political authorities of his day that they crucified him for it. Sam, is that the Jesus you know? Is this the sort of Jesus that all Christians should be looking to imitate? Well, for me, because everyone, for me, has a unique access to the divine, and I'm not going to tell anyone what to believe. But for me, there's a difference between Christianity, as in the early church, the Gospels, the message of Jesus, and Christendom. Christianity as an established religion of state that is interested in preserving the status quo. Jesus has blessed the armies of both sides in countless wars. According to Christendom, 
I don't believe Jesus ever calls anyone to war. I think it's perverse. We have flags in churches, nation-state flags in churches. And I think Quakers have a saying, which for me helps me a lot, which is respect the laws of your state, but let your first loyalty be to God's purposes. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. And, and I would call Christians to take their morality from Jesus Christ, not from those around them. Most people in our society take their morality through consensus. They take their morality through the people next to them. And that is an absolutely fantastic survival mechanism. You're going to live long. You're going to be safe, probably, because, hey, you're doing what everyone else is doing. But that's not a moral way to live, and that's not a Christian way to live. So I'd call for people to be loyal to God first. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online and on DAB across the city of Manchester. If anything that you've heard today has really stimulated your thinking or provoked your anger, do please get in touch with us in our studios in Birkenhead, Merseyside. We'll be only too pleased to hear from you. But in the meantime, I'm delighted to say that it has been an absolute privilege to spend this hour today with the Quaker, the peacemaker, Sam Walton. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in a rightful mind. In purer lives thy service find. In deeper reverence praise. In deeper reverence, praise. In simple trust, like theirs who heard beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of the Lord, let us like them without a word rise up. And follow thee, rise up and follow thee. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives Put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting.
Put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.